Good afternoon. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. Back for another week of great news. As we do every week. That's right. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. Each and every week we shine a big old spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. And this is a big weekend because it's Memorial Day weekend. And typically that means barbecues. It means an extra day off of work. And going to the movies. And going to the movies. You know, also honoring, you know... People that those that have fallen. Yes. The real reason for Memorial Day. But right. as we look in the entertainment world, there is some cynicism that seeps into some of these more important holidays. The Christmas season supposed to be about one thing. It ends up being about all the money that you can make at the box office. But I don't know that that's the case this weekend at the movies. And we'll get into this in just a second because there are some big movie releases that uh, aren't very cynical, but they're supposed to be bright and happy and fun, and we'll find out if Cole thinks whether they are. Yes. But first, as we do each and every week, we want to share with you the biggest news over the week. And Cole, I I think I've told you I've only seen a little bit of Game of Thrones, but they got in trouble a few weeks back for featuring very prominently... A cup of Starbucks. Starbucks coffee, yeah, just kind of sitting on a table in the midst of all... Again, for for the one and a half people out there that has no idea what Game of Thrones is, it's a Lord of the Rings-esque medieval style and time period based show with knights and and wizards and things like that. Yes. A a place where a Starbucks cup of coffee doesn't normally belong. Now, I know Starbucks is kind of an old organization, but I I don't think they've been around that long. Not quite. Not quite. They're up there. Hmm. But you know what has been around that long? Water. Water, right? However, water bottles are not that oh, old either. Yeah, I guess so. So when one popped up in the final episode of the final season of Game of Thrones, uh, people noticed. It wasn't as noticeable. It wasn't like front and center like the Starbucks coffee was, but it was down by somebody's leg as they were sitting in a chair. And yeah, these poor actors, they put on a lot of makeup and big fur coats and other costuming things for us just for our own pleasure. They need some water while they're doing that. I can forgive it. I can forgive it because I didn't watch it. So but some people did and they noticed and uh, over a million people have demanded a redo of the final season of Game of Thrones. Not just because of a couple set dressing errors, uh, mainly the plot and the character development and some twists and turns that it took. Is your name on that list, Cole? I mean, for chaos's sake alone, I considered it, but... Again, these people put a lot of time and effort into this thing that I kind of love. I'm not going to complain. Yeah, just let it let it die, folks. And it won't really die because I think they've already got one or two spinoffs planned. But anyway, not all news is Game of Thrones related. What else is going on, Cole? In the pureness of news, we love bringing up Mr. Rogers here on the show. And just yesterday, it was the 143rd day of the year. And in Pennsylvania, that marked a day to honor Fred Rogers' kindness. This is a man that said 143 was his favorite number because it represented I love you, the letters it takes to spell out each one of those words. And so... So the the state legislature kind of made it a day to honor Fred Rogers. Let it be known, Cole was looking directly at me when he said, I love you. It's true. 
We, there's a lot of love to go around here on screen cleaning. It's funny to go from Game of Thrones to Mr. Rogers. I felt like we needed to. I've got yeah. another piece of news. In the TV world, one of the biggest television shows nowadays that isn't just being streamed are the kind of shows that you have to watch live. They're the contest shows. And The Voice is probably one of the biggest ones. Yeah, so departures from uh, with Game of Thrones and also maybe some departures on The Voice? The two staples of that show, one on either end of the four little rotating chairs, were Blake Shelton and Adam Levine. And Adam Levine will be leaving... What? ...for the next season. Why? To focus on the money he can make being in Maroon 5, I would assume. Say it ain't so, Cole. Um, so is he going to come back? It's possible. So there, there is a rotating cast in the middle, and some people have come and gone. The new, just so we know what's going forward, he will be replaced by Gwen Stefani, and then the other. But she's done judges, the show before. And she's right? been on before. She's yeah. going to kind of move over to his seat. I think. I assume. I don't know how they'll play musical chairs with it. Okay. Musical chairs. Because uh, it's a singing show, Jeff. I get it. Okay. I'm with you. And then I'm the other so chairs... invested in it that I don't want to. I don't want to interrupt you, Cole. It'll be Kelly Clarkson, John Legend, and Blake Shelton. Okay. So Blake is staying, but well, because his girlfriend is coming back. That dynamic between Blake so... and Adam. I mean, Adam seemed like his real girlfriend. Oh, they That's they have true. a lot of chemistry. I mm. think, and I I love watching that. Okay. Today, this is totally weird and just kind of a side note, but today is also John C. Riley's birthday. Right on. And I happened to be in California over the weekend, and I was told that uh, I was having a conversation with somebody, and he like walked right behind the person that I was talking to. So I was facing him, was like texting, stood there for a while, and he just walked up these stairs, and I didn't even notice. It reminds me and of I, the episode of The Office where Michael's in New York yes. and thinks he sees one person and Mrs. Conan walking yeah. behind him in the other way. And I didn't believe the person who told me this until they pulled out their cell phone and showed me the picture. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess he really did walk like right in front of me and I didn't see him. What's your favorite John C. Riley movie, Jeff? Ooh, John C. Riley. Man, he's done some good ones. As a kid, I probably would have said The River Wild. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Um, Guardians of the Galaxy could count. <laughs> yeah, that's not really. I really liked the first Wreck It Ralph movie. Yes. That was a great film featuring him quite prominently. Um, man, he's done some good films where he really has shown off his range. He shows up in movies that you don't expect as oh, sure. well sometimes. But my favorite is where he's being the most John C. Riley that he could, and that's Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Yeah, you and you and Mark Waite. That's like I think he said that's the best comedy ever made. He's got good taste. Hmm. Well, I mean, it is a big weekend at the movies, and so big, in fact, that we had to we had to call in one of our our heavy hitters here to help us pick up the slack a little bit, and that would be Rod Gustafson. Rod, Thank welcome. You. A heavy hitter. Yes. I appreciate that. Thank you. He's healed up, so he's yeah. he's back. He's back I, at bat and ready to go. Yeah, swing as, for us. Seeing as I broke my arm a few weeks ago, I, I a heavy hitter. That's that's on the horizon. I'm hoping. <laughs> Rod is no stranger to screen cleaning. He has been 
uh, with us before for our end-of-the-year wrap-up shows. He was one of the special secret guest judges for our Halloween movie bracket. Ooh. So everyone, Jeff included, that was a little prickled by the fact that Charlie Brown <laughs> kept moving on. Uh, Rod Gustafson, okay. he's All the right. man to blame. Yeah. I take some There's of the, his voice. So I take some of the heat for that. <laughs> we wanted his first trip back at the plate to you know to not be too taxing on him. So we, we didn't give him the biggest movie release to, to take a stab at. But... Uh, I think it's called like the sun also rises, or that's something else, isn't it? The sun. Yeah. You you tell us what the movie's called. <laughs> the and... sun is also a star. Yeah, that is a fact. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, all right, so we have movies these days that are based on songs. They're based on video games. How about a movie that's based on a psychological study? What do you think? Interesting. You, I'd like to be in the pitch room for that one. I thought you were going to talk about the genre of this new genre <laughs> that's popping up of. Movies based on like really bizarre terminal illnesses mm, and ro- yeah, and yeah. romance being yeah, thrown in we there. We get that too. You know, they're <laughs> they're they're digging deep. What this movie does have going forward, though, is it is based on a novel. So somebody first wrote the novel based on the psychological study, and uh, so the deal, the setup is this. And I'm going to use a Roger Ebert line: "The meat cute." This is a romance. It's a it's an older teen romance. We've got a guy and a girl. He is about to go to Dartmouth uh, in New York City. She is just she's in her senior year and she is looking at school and what she's going to do with her life. But she and her family are Jamaican and they're living in New York and their immigration time has run out and they're going to be deported the next day. And she's just in a flurry and she's trying to figure out how can she rescue this situation. She wants mm. to stay in New York City. So she has, she's managed to get an appointment with this immigration lawyer in a few hours and so she's in downtown Manhattan somewhere. And uh, But when she rode the subway in, what she didn't know is she was noticed by a, another young man mm. who, of course, is going to be the other partner in this relationship. And he is determined, he feels that he it has been destined to meet her. And so he finally tracks her down, talks her into going to a coffee shop and says, I bet if you answer these 36 questions, and this is where the study comes in. This mm. is actually based on the study. See, I've I've heard, now that you mentioned that, You've heard I've this, read that you? article yes. on the internet. They yes. didn't show that in the trailer. So you know, this is one of the most popular New York Times articles because a writer in the New York Times wrote about it in 2015. She tried the experiment and she did fall in love. Can I have this? I I mean, my wife loves me. I know it. But I just want her to fall in love with me <laughs> I'll give again. You, I'll give you the cheat sheet. Okay, Jeff. thank you. Yeah, yeah. And so anyhow, he he puts her up to this. And so he starts giving her the questions. But of course, there's interruption after interruption as they go through this fateful day in New York City. And uh, well, I won't give away the end. Aww. Yeah, sorry, guys. But you know, it, this is... It's one of those kind of quiet, little, lovely romances that maybe I just appreciate it because life's really hectic right now. We got, you know, of course, action films are going crazy mm-hmm. on the screens and whatnot. It's kind of nice to just be able to sit back and relax and watch this. I'm not usually a big fan of teen romances, but I was surprised. Um, this is, is this is starring Yara, Yara Shahidi, and she is from Blackish and Growish on TV. Mm. And then Charles Melton, who I'm thinking, I know I recognize this guy, Reggie from Riverdale. And, oh. uh, and the two of them actually have some nice chemistry. It was believable. Usually... 
in these, I've met you and I'm going to be fall in love with you in the day movies, I think, nah, I just am not buying this. But this one actually had some chemistry, actually worked out fairly well. A couple of other things, aside from the study, uh, that would be kind of a cool thing to do if you want to talk about this movie with your family later. And by the way, the study was originally put together to build relationships, not just romantic relationships, but relationships with anybody. You okay. Could, you could use it at, at a family reunion for that third lost cousin that you're awkwardly wondering, what can we talk about? You know, so the 36 questions are pretty general. So that's why it was built. But the other talking point in this movie is immigration. And there's, oh, yeah. you know, there's Very so, timely. Yeah, it, it definitely is rolling that in there, too. So, it's I mean, prescient I, I like for even Rod Gustafson, our native Canadian. Yeah, yes. well, I didn't want to bring that up. But yeah, yeah. Cole, we need to. Yeah, our, uh, Rod, under, I am legal. We I need am to legal. see your documents right now. <laughs> I've got them with me. I, I promise, really. <laughs> Whew, this is getting hot in here. And uh, so anyhow, I appreciate a movie, though, even if it even if it's a little teen romance that can bring some 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 good discussion and that type of thing to the table. Um, as far as parents, if you're wondering about, there's uh, there's that one word, that one word, so that they could get a PG-13 and if that sexual expletive hadn't been in here, this would have been a PG-rated movie and uh, otherwise uh, it, it's pretty good. A couple of sensual moments, but not sexual moments, which I appreciated and uh, that they weren't sexual moments. Got to get that right. And, uh, and <laughs> otherwise, so I was I was pretty impressed. It kept me it, it kept me engaged. The sun is also a star. If you're not seeing all of the big budget, big yeah. action movies this summer, there's some other stuff to see as well. This is a great date movie, I should mention. Mm. If you're looking to break the ice with somebody, go see this one. Oh, last thing. New York City looks beautiful in this film. You know how you get occasional films where you can tell... I don't know if the city paid them off or what, but this is a little bit of a love story for New York City as well. And it, it's just kind of nice to see that city shot in a really beautiful way. You know another city that's looking good on the movie screens this weekend? Agrabah! Agrabah! <laughs> yes! <laughs> this is the weekend of the Aladdin remake. So if you're not going on a date to see an actual romance, go to the one that 90s kids can get together for, sing along to a whole new world, and, and fall in love all over again with Aladdin and Jasmine. And, of course, the genie. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm excited to hear what you think about Will Smith rapping in Agrabah. I have decided that the take I will bring to the table with a lot of these remakes going forward is that they're fun. Mm -hmm. I do enjoy them. I spent my whole childhood, as soon as the internet cropped up and as soon as we got YouTube, watching covers of these Disney songs and watching people try to recreate them. And now I'm getting an actual big budget recreation of an animated classic that I grew up loving, what is there to complain about there? I mean, it's you can be cynical. You can say Disney's just trying to do a cash grab, but it's a perfectly serviceable recreation of something that I enjoy. So I enjoyed it. Okay. So, I mean, you can't help but compare it to the original considering this is, for a lot of people, it's one of their favorite Disney movies of all time. It's one of, it would be in my top, Five mm -hmm. or ten, absolutely, um, and those are pretty some pretty big genie shoes to fill for Will Smith. Does He's he kind of pull his own? Bad. He's not as bad as the trailers made him out to be. I think Will Smith should be suing the trailer companies for defamation of character <laughs> because this, he did a pretty good job. And there were a lot of places where he did things that weren't just. Oh, Robin Williams did that too. He's his own genie, and he does kind of play a little blue hitch 
for the middle of the movie where he's trying to get Aladdin and Jasmine yeah. together. And and it makes sense more when you watch the movie why they chose him than just seeing all the snippets that are available online. So where would you say this ranks among the other Disney uh, live action remakes that we've been seeing? Well, you have to – you have to differentiate them by how they differ from their originals. And I think one of the cool things that Aladdin does that is different from the original is it makes Jafar a more compelling villain. Interesting. Instead of, so a lot has been said about how it's young Jafar and hot Jafar now instead hot of just Jafar. like the weird <laughs> long-faced animated you know, mustache-twirling, beard-twirling guy that we got in the original. This Jafar – is young for a reason. He kind of represents the path that Aladdin could go down. Mm -hmm. We get a little bit of Jafar backstory that he grew up on the streets as well and that he was a little bit of a thief in his younger days. I like it when they do that. And so Aladdin kind of sees that and he sees like how this desire for money and power can spiral out of control. We know from the original that eventually Jafar has the genie's powers and his wishes go out of control and he keeps wanting more and more power. And that's where he differentiates from Aladdin in that Aladdin does wish to be a prince, but he's trying to do it for the right reasons. And then Aladdin makes his choice to be better. Hmm. Whereas Jafar, because he didn't have anything growing up as well, had to grab and snatch at anything that he could. And he becomes obsessed with that power. Mm. And I I like that dichotomy. That is one of my biggest complaints about the kind of overall Disney genre is they never work on the antagonist. It's so nice to see Mm. them actually round out the antagonist. When you're going to get a half hour more of movie than you did in the original, I like that it went to good places. Also, it's a Guy Ritchie film. Um, There's some action in there that you can tell (laughs) is Guy Ritchie-y during the original, you know, street rat. Uh, riff-raff kind of Aladdin jumping through the streets of Agrabah. We get some cool Guy Ritchie tracking shots of okay. action and chase nice. scenes. Yeah. And I, it looks good. I will say I have I have not seen a Guy Ritchie film I didn't enjoy. Mm-hmm. So thanks for the reminder. The biggest question for me, though, Memorial Day weekend, I'm looking for something to do with my kids. Is this something I'm going to plop down the cold hard cash for to – for four people to go see Aladdin, I'm not taking my two-year-old, no way. I think so. I think that it is worth seeing. It adds enough to the original. Now, rewatchability, the Disney movies for my generation has a lot that you go back to and you watch it over and over again. But it's possible that for a new generation, they can go Absolutely. to these movies. They are good. You know what? I think Aladdin was the first theatrical movie I took my kids to. They came home really? and said, watch out the camel spits for like three months. <laughs> but. <laughs> Watch out, he spits. Yeah. They really enjoyed it. And this will be the six-year-olds, eight-year-olds going to this one, I bet, 20, 30 Mm. years from now. This will be the one they pull out. It won't be the one we remember. Well, Cole, uh, I think I have to take them to see this film because I ranked this movie pretty high on my top 10 summer movies. So I I think I got to contribute to that so that I can be right. And later up in the show, we're going to be talking about... Our big summer movie scorecard that we've got going on. As we will every week, we'll update you which movies are doing the best in the box office and which between Jeff and I are doing the best at predicting that. But before we get there, we want to pull back the curtain just a moment. Right. And we're going to be we're going to be speaking with a man who is behind the curtain at Lionsgate. And he's going to tell us a whole lot more about the movie-making process when we return here on Screen Cleaning. As long as ten regular men, definitely. 
<laughs> He's based a galloping horse. A hundred bad guys with swords. We're going behind the scenes or behind the screens on screen cleaning today. As we sometimes do, we are joined in the studio by a veteran of the industry. Today, we get a peek into a part of the production process we haven't before. Matt Jansen is the Senior Vice President of Production and Development at Lionsgate. Hello, Matt. Hello, Cole. How are you? Very good. We're going to start off. It's it's the 20th anniversary of a lot of movies that I love. And so I'm going to let John C. McGinley ask uh, the first question of you. What what would you say you do here? You're the senior VP of production and development. And that sounds very fancy. But yeah, you, it is. It takes up do? a lot of a business card. Um, my, jo- I mean, I work for a movie studio. Um, the particular studio that I work for is is Lionsgate, um, and you know, I think historically, a movie studio executive, uh, at least what I learned about it, I think probably from the movie Barton Fink, uh, the Michael Lerner character mm-hmm. in that particular movie, uh, is, is you know some cigar chewing uh, guy whose whose job it is is to just ruin the movies of of filmmakers. You say no to creation. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and you know, and 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 kill people's dreams, but uh, what I try to do in my job is like you know, a, a movie studio's function is to to release what what I would argue is a portfolio of movies over over a given either fiscal or calendar year. Usually, most movie studios release you know anywhere from eight to fifteen movies in a year, and over the course of that, you're trying to you know find movies that simultaneously find an audience and people like and respond to. And also make a profit for for the company. My specific job as as a development and production executive is to find movies for the company, in this case Lionsgate, to make. Um, that could be a script. It could be a book. It could be an article. It could be a, a, an idea. Um, not my company. They made a movie out of Slender Man, so I guess it can be a meme. Um, you know, whatever somebody thinks, that's going to be something that's going to going to motivate audiences to go to a movie theater to see it. And then you take that script, that book, that idea, and you develop it often with – always with a writer, often with a producer, um, in the best case scenario, with a director uh, to turn that into something that that feels unique and yet there's going to be an audience for that particular movie. And then you over – in my job, you get to that point. you, You find a budget. People argue about that. You find a cast. People argue, people argue about that. People argue about money and creative they argue about in money L.A. And, 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 you know, what should this movie be made for and, and how many people are going to come see this movie based on if you spend this amount of money versus this amount of money. Uh, where do we shoot this movie to, to, to get the most, you know, bang for our buck as it were, but also so many places have, have, have tax rebates, soft money, um, Blah, blah, blah. You you argue about these things and then I oversee that movie through production while it's shooting, making sure that it's creatively uh, reflecting uh, the original vision that that we want to make. So do you ever get down to the filming the studios where it's actually happening? Oh, yeah. In fact, I um, I just came back last week from a month, a month in Atlanta on a on a movie set. Um, So I'm there all the time. Typically, I mean, that's kind of rare. Typically, when a movie's running well, you go a couple of times and tell everybody, "Hooray! This is going great! Thank you so much!" And when a movie's not going well, you're there. You're there a lot more. Um, 
and nobody likes you, particularly when you're at the studio because you're just the you're the studio the guy. Studio guy. I feel like you're the villain in some movies. That's um, <laughs> you. You are till um, if the movie works, then everybody's happy. Uh, but anyway, and then I'll, I'll follow a movie all the way through post-production and then I'm doing, uh, you know, through the editing of a movie, the scoring of a movie, the visual effects of a movie, we're helping to to, to oversee and manage that. Again, it's largely the director's vision um, that, that, you're sure, that you're beholden to. Mm-hmm. Um, producers are there to help and then the studio's there to, to, to simultaneously um, be a creative component when needed. And again, when in the best case scenarios, I'm doing nothing. Um, but uh, – but often, you know, people are relying on on, on, on that sort of feedback to, to help get to the end. And then I'm doing that versions of all of those things I just described you on a number of different movies at a time. Most of it is weighted towards the early stages of, of the development process. But I can I'm can be developing a script while a movie's in production, while another movie's in post production, while another movie's about to be released. You got a thing a lot of things going on that conveyor yeah, you belt. Have a at lot the same of time. a plate spinning, yeah. Mm-hmm. So one movie that people are going to at least recognize one, if not plenty, that you've had credit on is The Hunger Games. And so that started off as a book Mm -hmm. that eventually turned into a movie. What is – shortly, what's that process like? Is someone out there just reading a ton of books looking for what we can make a movie into? What what happens there? Most most studios and ours does too have a book scout whose job it is is to kind of be at the front of – the book stuff. What's interesting about The Hunger Games is we actually picked up that movie after it had been published for a while. Most books are picked up before they're published. That movie – or I'm sorry, that book had been been published for, for some time. Uh, well, I mean six months or so. I think we finally got, got the deal done, which is, which is rare. Um, and it wasn't a very big hit when we got it. We didn't know that it was going to turn into what it turned into. And in fact, that book never – reached number one on the New York Times children's bestseller list until um, it had been out for for a year. Uh, And we had already optioned it by that point. And and it kind of just developed its own word of mouth momentum because it's a a very good book. Um, But to to more precisely answer your question, what you're trying – we didn't say it specifically about The Hunger Games. We didn't pick up that book – or uh, because we thought it was going to be a huge bestseller, we just liked the the story, the way that it was told. We thought that there were some really um, cinematic aspects to it, and we thought that the concept, which at that time became diminished to kids killing kids, but the concept <laughs> that we were responding—I to— I imagine that sold real well in meetings. It did not, because that's what people globbed onto. What we were responding to, and if you go back and look, it's how the movie was actually sold, um, was about. You know, how far would you go to protect your family? And that's what the Katniss Everdeen choice that she makes in the first act of that movie is that I'm willing to ostensibly sacrifice my life for for my sister. And there was something very universal in that 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 we really responded to, even if it was told through the prism of of a 16 year old girl. Um, everybody of all ages could relate to that idea. And that that book has some really cinematic moments as well that did mm-hmm. translate well onto screen. Mm-hmm. The whole processional, the girl on fire, visuals. And even the structure that she tells the story in really lended itself well. You'll notice um, that particularly that first movie really sticks to a lar- largely the structure of, of the book. Um, partially because Suzanne Collins, the author, you know, she was she was a – a great creative contributor to those movies, um, but she had done so much of that that thinking and work ahead of time. 
So what kind of story do you look for? If you're the guy that people are coming to and or you're the guy reading books, um, what do you look for in a story? And this is going to be a two-part question Ooh. that's going to make um, that's going to make a good movie financial wise and quality wise. And hopefully that's both. But like, is there is there a difference? And what are you looking for to for a story that lends itself to that? Yeah, I mean, every movie you're aiming to make financially successful and creatively successful. Um, you know, every what you're also trying to think of is who's the audience for 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 a particular thing. Um, so you're, you're balancing that. How big is the audience for this? Can we get that audience? Do these pieces? Does this particular story? Does this concept? Does this author? At least when you're thinking of a book, um, help draw that audience to to this particular story if it's told uh, as, as a theatrical movie. I mean, what are, what are you trying? What are we trying to value? It's all different. What we're really trying to think of, though, is what is going to draw uh, uh, an audience to a movie theater, um, and that's how we're evaluating books. Uh, you get lucky sometimes that they become huge bestsellers. Um, but I'm working on this other book um, that we've turned into a movie, Chaos Walking, that stars um, Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley and Mads Mikkelsen. It's based on a, on a book that wasn't very successful, but we, we found a lot of universal ideas in that that we really – responded to and it, and it felt cinematic. Um, so again, we're just looking for things that feel like that's going to to touch audiences in a way. I would argue it this way. Um, if you're looking at a book and you're seeing it as, as a movie trailer or a 30-second spot on television, people who know nothing about the book should be responding to that as a movie. And that's typically what we're trying to to evaluate when, when, when reading books. Never assuming that it's going to be a bestseller, but evaluating it based on, on just its creative merits and, and does it translate well to a, a theatrical movie-going experience. You know, we, we say this all the time, so all, of the, all of the same thought processes go into making bad decisions as making good decisions. Uh, and, you know, hopefully you get right more than you get wrong. But uh, no one sets out to make a bad movie. They just sometimes happen. They happen. That decision process can be different for a lot of movies, but you start to recognize it, right? And and being so involved in the process, you kind of can see how the sausage is made. Are you still able to go out and just enjoy a movie on the weekend? You know, I would argue, and my wife tells me I'm getting soft, so... Um, or I shouldn't say that. She has told me I've been soft or a little too forgiving on, on, on a couple of movies. Um, but, uh, yeah, I can totally enjoy movies. I think that I'm just a little more appreciative of some of some of them sometimes. If I can see what they're trying to do mm. or what they mean to do. I can also be much harsher on movies too though because you're like, well, there's no excuse. There's just no excuse to not have that figured out. There's no excuse to be that lazy in, in, in your storytelling. There's too many talented people or there's too much money or there's too much going on here to, to, to do that. So, you know, maybe that's part of getting older too. I find myself more forgiving but also more judgmental as a result. But I can still just appreciate a movie as, as, as a movie and I've had fun particularly with my children of rediscovering things that, that, that I – loved um, and sometimes seeing, you know, how they've evolved and and other times discovering, oh, this isn't nearly as good as I remember it being. 
So you're a movie fan. What are some of your favorite movies that you haven't been a part of? The, if you just want to sit down and watch a movie. Well, I'm curious from you. You just said it's the 20th anniversary of some of the greatest <laughs> movies. So that's 1999, which I actually would argue is one of the great movie Thank years. You. I have this argument all the time. It is my number one. And I remember feeling that – and. In 1999, that this is an exceptionally good year and was disappointed actually that – actually, if you go and look at the, the the Academy Award Best Picture nominees from that year, they aren't very reflective of, of the great movies. In fact, right. very few of those I would even argue are great movies. Um, but uh, but what are some of the movies that you're thinking of from 1999? So we played a clip from Office Space. I love the idea from 99 that we were in this weird era of prosperity and so we had like a white boredom as a theme in Office Space and The Matrix in American Beauty um, and Fight Club where they all just were bored with their life and they needed to spice it up in a weird way. But some other really great ones like The Iron there was Giant a, I think the 90s in year. general kind of had that overall, particularly with young people, this sort of like bored malaise that we're stuck yeah. in and we feel like there's – we want to fight for something but there's nothing to fight for. Fight against. Particularly for white people, yeah. Mm -hmm. So with the Iron Giant, they said it back in the 50s and had like a communist scare and that kind of became our – like the pushback. I mean I'm a horror fan. So the Blair Witch Project also came out that year and the Sixth Sense came out that year. Star Wars got ruined that year. Uh, yeah, Star Wars came back. <laughs> that's in that, but that's why it's an important year, right? We got Austin Powers making fun of spy movies that year. We got, um, I mean, American Pie, right? Not a great movie, but it kind of reinvigorated the teenage comedy for a little while. Mm. Yeah, I think it, there's, there's there's a lot of um, being John Malkovich was that year. Oh yeah, and then uh, some like good movies, yeah. <laughs> and, then and then there were some good movies. Bringing Out the Dead, a movie that nobody seems to like but me, came out that year. Ah. Um, but uh, movies that – are you asking movies that I wish that I had worked on or movies that, that you feel like have influenced me? How about the ones that influenced you? Because you – I mean to get into this industry, you have to like what you're doing at some point. Yeah, so what kind of got you going? And I think I'm like a lot of people, at least people that I know in the industry that fell in love with movies at a very young age. Um, the movies that like really kind of cast their spell on me, I guess this is going to kind of reference when I grew up. Um, well, I already talked about 99. I'm yeah. Um, the Right Stuff, um, Wings of Desire, uh, Do the Right Thing, City Lights, The General. I mean, E.T. was a monumental <laughs> movie and it's and it's time. And so as the young movie fan that you were, what did you do to get – where you are today. What was your career path like? What did you go to college for? Is there like a movie executive major in the, some college? There's not. There? And, what's, and what is so fascinating, particularly about those people who do love movies or even television or media in general and want to be a part of it, is the thing that was never very effectively taught to me on, on any level of education was just the the wide swath of, of jobs and opportunities, particularly when you go to school. And I went to film school um, at BYU. And, um, you know, you kind of had four tracks. You could be a director, you could be a writer, you could be a cinematographer, you could be an editor. I guess you could kind of sort of be a producer, but I still don't 100 percent know what that means on a, on a student level. Um, but those were the things and you kind of thought that those were the jobs that, that, that people did. Um, when I got to the end of my film school career, I ended up um, getting an internship in Los Angeles for a producer named Scott Rudin. Um, and who I never really met. So I ended up interning, I guess, for his executives and things like that. Uh, I did meet him, but I didn't really work for him. 
But anyway, and then, you know, then you're in this giant, you learn about all of these other jobs from from marketing to like even like executives work for Scott Rudin. I thought Scott Rudin was just the person out there every day pounding the pavement for these things. Not that Scott Rudin doesn't work hard, but, you know, he had a he had a office of 10 people in Los Angeles and an office of 15 people in, in New York. I mean, it took 15 people to make Scott Rudin, Scott Rudin. Um, and that's not the case with everybody. But I mean, that's 25 jobs that I didn't really know even existed. Um, and so and then I just kind of found my path that way where I, I had this love for 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 movies and fortunately was able to to be able to figure out ways to communicate that in a way that other people responded to. And then I just ladder climbed. Typically in my line of work, you start off as an assistant. That means a lot of phone answering and coffee running and scheduling and sometimes dry cleaning and all of those those silly things. <laughs> the typical um, like put upon PA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh but you know, while you're doing that, you're trying to also read as much as you can and be as influential as you can, kind of try to prove yourself to 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 those who will listen until somebody does listen. I mean, the job is like anybody's job. What you're trying to do in in your job and I'm still trying to do it in my job is you're trying to save whoever your superior is a bunch of work. So whenever people f- figure out that like, oh, if I just do all of these things, my boss won't have to do them, but then can take credit for them. You suddenly have created value for yourself because uh, people will want you around. And if you want to leave, they're going to try to figure out ways to, to, to make you happy and make you or promote you or whatever, whatever the case may be. And I did my own versions of that till till I ended up at Lionsgate. And even at Lionsgate, I came in as a junior executive. I'm a senior executive now. I can run my own projects and 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 those sorts of things, but that's so. If you had to works. boil it down, what's your final bit of advice for someone that wants to break into the movie industry? I think my real advice go for go out people, to L.A. with a dream, or um, it depends on what you want to do in in the movie industry. Uh, I mean, if you want production jobs, so many production jobs are moving out of L.A. anymore to Atlanta, to Canada, to Louisiana, to Hungary. Um, you know, people are. Studios in particular are ch- chasing where rebates are, and that's where a lot of the production jobs are. So you don't necessarily have to be in L.A. if you want to work in production. If you want to be a writer or, or a director, my real advice, um, and I've given this advice pretty consistently over the years, is just um, nobody's going to discover you. I think that that, and I'm guilty of this too. Like we like those stories, those stories of people getting discovered. They were nobody, and then one day there's something. Um, but um, the piece that always gets left out of those is what what, what got discovered. And so if you want to be a, a writer, then write some scripts. I really did come to Hollywood with this idea that um, uh, I love movies and therefore they're going to love me back. Um, and they don't really. Uh, just because you love movies or you love fixing old cars or whatever the thing is just because you love a particular thing doesn't mean that it's ever going to love you back and the odds are that it's probably not um so can you still love that thing if it's not loving you back um and how can you love that thing if it's still loving you back and and you know and i do like i do still love movies i do still love making movies i feel honored um every day that i work at a place that actually writes me a check um, to to work on movies, and I feel like one of these days they're going to figure out that I've been been swindling them. Uh, but nonetheless, um, 
you know, it's still hard. It's still a, a job. It's still a business at the end of the day. Uh, and so you have to keep that that love for movies um, driving you or driving me anyway uh, so that you don't lose sight of, of why you're really there. Thank you so much for your insight. Thank you. Matt Jansen is the Senior Vice President of Production and Development at Lionsgate Entertainment Company. Now we know just a little bit more about how the movies we love get made. You're listening to Screen Cleaning. So initially it was like, can you make 200 scales? No problem. And then it came back, oh, 2,000, no problem. It might take a week. And then 2,000 became 6,000, 6,000 became 10,000, 10,000 became 20,000, ultimately 60,000. And then in the end we needed to get 20,000 more, 80,000 skulls. And he said, ah, it's an awful lot of skulls. Jeff, what movie can you possibly think that could take 80,000 skulls to make it happen? Man, it's got to be The Lord of the Rings. And you hear that and it, it's not too surprising because the amount of detail that went into that movie is mind-boggling. Oh, and it's fascinating. So we are back here on screen cleaning going behind the scenes just spoke with matt jansen one of the studio executives over at lionsgate and now jeff and i are going to share some of our favorite behind the scenes stories that crop up and i wanted to start with the lord of the rings because Mm. these are the movies that i know the most about the behind the scenes because on those special edition dvds that were hundreds of dollars when they first came out you got a feature length movie worth of behind the scenes stuff that went with your longer-than-feature-length movies. And, you know, speaking of Lord of the Rings, which featured the wonderful actor Sean Astin, some of my favorite special features behind-the-scenes stuff uh, comes from The Goonies. Sure. One of his first big movies. And I love the fact that you can – one of the special features on the DVD or the Blu-ray is that you can see the entire kid cast reunite to do feature-length commentary. Oh, one of the anniversary DVDs? Yes. And they just – like, you know, down in the corner you can see like this entire table of every single one of them with director Richard Donner doing it. But as far as uh, behind-the-scenes footage from the movie, I love how they they talk about the scene in which they see One-Eyed Willie's pirate ship for the first time. The actors had not seen the ship until the moment that shot was taken. So, you know, they come up out of the water— and they had like these underwater speakers so that the actors knew when it was time to come up out of the water and get that genuine first reaction of this pirate ship, which as, you know, a 10, a 13, and 16-year-old, that would be awesome. That would be like a dream come true. Like what kid that age hasn't dreamed of seeing an actual pirate ship? And sometimes we forget that these actors are just kids kids. the behind the scenes kind of give us that angle of remembering the people that are behind the characters and so to see just a bunch of 13 year old boys oogle at a pirate ship right that's us yeah i mean they they may be a little more entitled than other uh, kids their age might be but deep down they have the same likes and dislikes and passions that that anybody else might so, yeah, that's one of my favorites from The Goonies. You mentioned the commentary that goes with it. My mm-hmm. favorite director to listen to his director commentary is Guillermo del Toro because ah. this man is a true horror movie fan. 
some of his his movies, The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, they're not my favorite horror movies ever or stylized movies ever. But hearing him talk about why he did the things that he did makes you just appreciate the heck out of him because he knows what he's talking about. And he references just so casually every movie that inspired him to do this one little teensy tiny like decal on the side of a wall or something. And it's just so fascinating and it, it's so gratifying to hear a fan be able to turn around and make these great movies. Yeah. You know, I have a confession to make. I have never watched the director's or actor's commentary all the way through for a single movie. Uh-huh. I've never done it. Because these days, it's rare that I'll re-watch a movie. So, gosh, I ought to do that with The Goonies. I ought to do that with UHF. The other one I would want to mention would be some of the behind-the-scenes footage from The Dark Knight. Ah. We we had our, our stunts episode a, a little while back, and I was just amazed at the amount of practical effects that Christopher Nolan and his team put together for The Dark Knight series, the entire trilogy. It was just so much fun to see... That really cool bat pod and that little the little motorcycle that they had where he's laying down or basically at a 90 degree angle is it's I mean, it's all real. They actually created that stuff and they show you that it's just these people that are basically out on these runways that are doing these test drives and they're, you know, they're they're building them in these big hangars. And I I'm a sucker for practical effects. I would so prefer to see practical effects than CGI. Well, the practical effects are one thing, but sometimes a more comedic behind the scenes are the ones that do have the ridiculous amounts of CGI because you see a bunch of people with just black morph suits with dots on them running around in front of green screens being ridiculous, and then it turns into this great thing. Yeah, The Beauty yeah. and the Beast behind the scenes where where he looks just so ridiculous as he's elegantly escorting Belle down the giant staircase or any of the Marvel movies where Mark Ruffalo is growling as the Hulk, but he's just Mark Ruffalo and they're going to make him look like it eventually. See, that's the type of CGI that I can appreciate because you have the actual actors there acting, right? And especially the best one of my of mm. any like guy with dots on him, yep. in my opinion, is Benedict Cumberbatch. <gasps> When he is Smaug in the second oh. Hobbit movie. So I, I'll bring it full circle here. The behind the scenes of the Hobbits are probably the most disappointing because you saw all the joy and all the care that went into the Lord of the Rings ones. And then in The Hobbit, Peter Jackson just kind of looks tired all the time. And it's very sad. And the movies kind of suffer for it. But one man that took his job seriously in those movies is Benedict Cumberbatch crawling around, imitating being a dragon and giving the voice, like seeing the big microphone harness thing that's attached to him as he's growling out that dialogue as Smaug. My goodness. So many behind-the-scenes stories that we could share um, but man, we've, en- we've enjoyed speaking with Matt Jansen from Lionsgate and just reminiscing about some of our favorite behind the scenes moments in some very classic movies. And uh, when we return, we are going to give you an update on our big summer movie blockbuster scorecard and see, you know, if Cole and I need to start worrying or if we're feeling pretty good about ourselves. That's up next on Screen Cleaning. I see fire in 
Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is the moment of the show that Cole and I look forward to every week or will be for this entire summer. It's the time where we get to prove who's really better, Jeff, me or you. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a time to reflect on the busyness and craziness of the summer and how, you know, sometimes the predictions that we make are way off. And sometimes they're right they're right where they need to be. At the beginning of the summer, we each predicted what the top 10 box office earners would be during the course of the summer movie season. And we are into the summer movie season now, especially with Aladdin coming oh out boy. this weekend. But we need to recap a bit for what happened last weekend. Pikachu is still at the top. He's He's got those nubby little yellow hands just holding on to the lead. But John Wick 3... It's oh, coming man. on fast. Right. And neither of us have John Wick 3 on our top 10 list. But we do have Detective Pikachu in the same spot. So no matter how it goes, we both lose or gain points in the same way. I got to tell you, just looking at our list, you and I both have uh, Detective Pikachu at number six, making around $250 million. This movie's got a long way to go before it's going to make that much money. I had it a little bit less. I think that the the bottom half of the summer is going to be less weighted than the top half of the summer, not okay. necessarily like an, an even step ladder. But with the way John Wick is coming up on it, I don't mm. know if there's enough room between 7, 8, 9, and 10 for John Wick to end up 11. You know what I mean? You know, something that uh, Detective Pikachu has going for it that maybe John Wick does not is the rating. So John Wick 3 is going to be a little more limited in its audience, but I guess I'm scared of Keanu Reeves this summer. As are all of the people in his movie that are scared of him coming up and, and shooting them. Absolutely. Right? That's I love what those the, movies are about. I Just love the, the Keanu poster. Reeves shooting people. Yeah, the poster for this one is so great because... With each of these movies coming out, it just gets more and more ridiculous, the amount of people coming at him, and he just somehow manages to defeat all of them. I think this one is just hordes and hordes of people coming at him, and it's just one man, John Wick. And, oh, man, it's... uh, I, I only saw the first one. It's incredibly violent, incredibly violent. Yep. So if you are one of those people that are shelling out your money to see this film, just keep that in mind. You know, not all R-rated films are created equal, and uh, this one is extremely violent. There are for different reasons. Pikachu, though, did cross the $100 million mark during this week. Okay. And so it's, it is on its way. John Wick trailing, it's at $73 million right now. And The Intruder is still in the top three, technically. Really? Uh, with $29 million. Um, but Aladdin, That's not bad. Aladdin's going to kick it out pretty swift this week. And this week, we get to see the first big separation between our lists. That's right. Because I was a little low on Aladdin. You were about middle of the pack. Okay. How will it do? So you you think that Detective Pikachu is going to make more money than Aladdin? I thought that Detective Pikachu would make more money than Aladdin. A little underperformed, I guess. Uh, okay, so I think now you could probably admit that Aladdin, not only uh, did Pikachu not make that much, but Aladdin's coming out Memorial Day weekend. It's probably going to make more. 
So there will be there's going to be an upset here at, yes. on at least one of our lists, right? Especially after that four day weekend holiday weekend. Next week we will have an update as to which one of us is leading, and I think it's going to be Jeff. Okay, but I think you can take comfort in the fact that you know we are probably going to be way off on Detective Pikachu that. Maybe that'll help even things out a little bit. I think it's suffered a little more from Endgame than I thought it would. Hopefully mm. it'll just stay in theaters and people will go back and keep watching it over and over, <laughs> even though it didn't have the the big first weekend because people were still seeing Avengers. Hopefully people will still be watching it. It was a good movie. I really enjoyed it. Let me push it one more time. Okay. So that we can both be assisted in our lists. Good news for me. Maybe not such good news for Cole, but John Wick 3 could prove to be an upset on both of our lists. Keanu Reeves, come on, man. Anyway, as we are wont to do each and every episode, we like to do a little panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. <laughs> we can't talk about CGI and behind the scenes and motion capture Without talking about, really, the father of this movement, Andy Serkis. Not just a great name, but a great actor. I think, I, does it? Does he go back before Lord of the Rings, Cole? Does he have any motion capture work before that? I mean, that's what, that's what really got it all started off, it seems, was his work in the Lord of the Rings as Gollum or... Uh, Schmeagol. Schmeagol. And... Man, with each performance, he has just elevated things up a notch. He was also King Kong in Peter Jackson's King Kong, which I enjoyed way more than most other people. I think other people weren't quite sure what to do with that movie. It was a long movie, and it wouldn't be the last time that he would portray right. a monkey either. He had the the role in the Planet of the Apes, the new Planet of the Apes trilogy. Right, and his acting in these movies has been so stellar that you hear people just shouting from the rooftops, we need to nominate Andy Serkis for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar, for an actual acting Oscar. I think people see this and they think they they water it down to just a voiceover role. But no, as you talked about, Cole, they're putting on these really bizarre costumes with all these dots that you know is very time consuming just getting into that all that garb and then there's a physicality to what they're right. doing in it as well right. I've, I've seen some behind the scenes with Aladdin coming out this weekend i like watching robin williams in the voice booth yes um, putting a lot of emotion that's getting that emotion and it comes through in his voice acting and i love that and it was fantastic but andy circus is acting Amongst right. other people, just with dots on instead of a costume on. Do you think it's ever going to be in the cards, Cole, that they're going to they're gonna have either an acting category for voice acting or whether they're finally going to give Andy Serkis his due? I think that it's more likely that he just gets nominated for supporting or best actor in a role that he was uh, CGI in. Really? Do you and think I that... hope I really hope that it happens someday. If not, surely they'll throw a Lifetime Achievement Award 
his way someday. I think that is the most likely scenario is the lifetime achievement. And as we pan for the good, I want to mention a name that is a little less known than Andy Serkis. Ahmad Best was the man behind Jar Jar Binks, the very first actual fully CGI character in a movie. Phantom Menace came out in 1999 and beat Schmeagol and Gollum and Andy Serkis by two years. So even though Andy Serkis is... Arguably, you know, better and a, and a good actor, and those a movies were love. better received. <laughs> Jar Jar Binks and Ahmad Best was the first to accomplish it. Good for you, and I'm glad you brought him up because he he's been in the news lately because he really suffered depression. He had like some heavy depression when that movie came out, and there was all the backlash and the hate. Oh, it's just wrong. And we want to give credit where credit is due, where they are acting and they're doing this all. Like I like I started when I was talking about Aladdin. This is for our pleasure. And I'm going to try to be less cynical as we go forward and just kind Thank of enjoy you. what we're being given. That's going to do it for this episode of Screen Cleaning. We are here each and every Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern, right here on BYU Radio. 